Mount Annapurna is only the 10th tallest mountain in the world, but because it's so prone to avalanches and bad weather, it's more difficult and more dangerous to climb than Mount Everest is. But, as you might imagine, that doesn't stop people. Uh, even this past April, a group of 13 people made it up to the summit. Uh, and among them was one man named Dr. Wee Kin Chen, a 48-year-old anesthesiologist from Malaysia. All 13 of them got to the top. They celebrated. They looked down at the clouds. They took breaths from their oxygen masks, and they began their descent back down. But somewhere on the way back down, something terrifying happened. Dr. Chen disappeared. And they looked around, and he was gone. And so the guide had to decide very quickly what to do in cloudy, snow-blind conditions where you can't see much more than your hand in front of your face. Do we go after him now and risk all of us dying? Do we try to get down quickly so that they can send the helicopters up when the weather clears? What's the best way that we can rescue this man? And so the decision that he made was that the man had the best odds of survival if the whole camp went down as quickly as possible. And it sounds like he ran ahead of them, getting down the mountain as quickly as he could. When he crossed the finish line, exasperated, almost ready to collapse, he got to base camp so that he could sound the alarm and say, there's a man missing, we need to go and find him. And thus, the frantic frenzy to save Dr. Chin began. But it wasn't without its problems. The weather was terrible that day, and they could hardly take the helicopters off. So they had to make the difficult decision of, do we send people to go after him? Do we risk the lives of many to save one man? And on top of that, on top of the weather being bad, the insurance company had to approve their trip before they could take it. So even once the weather cleared, they had to stand there and wait until they got a phone call from their insurance company so that they could go and rescue a man who was stranded probably about five miles above sea level without food, water, or oxygen close to the altitude that commercial airplanes fly at. Eventually, the weather got clear enough. They got the phone call from the insurance company. They fired up the helicopters. They went after him, and they found him at 24,000 feet. After 44 hours without food, water, or oxygen, they found him alive. And they called it a miracle, and our Facebook feed lit up with the guy's picture because it was all over. Everybody was so excited. It was all over the news for a few days. Everyone was elated at the miracle this man had somehow survived at that altitude that long without any help. And then it all came crashing down when the Singapore hospital that he was transferred to the next month reported that he died of his injuries. And so the whole thing was just filled with all these questions. How, how did he get separated? Nobody even knows how he wandered off the trail. Uh, the only words he was able to speak the whole time he was in the hospital were, may I have hot water? And then the oxygen mask went right back onto him. Uh, what were the factors that led the tour guide to make the decision the way that he did? And probably the most haunting question of all, if they hadn't waited for the weather to clear and if they hadn't waited for the insurance company to clear them, would Dr. Chen still be alive today? If you think of the Christian life like a perilous journey, which the Bible describes it as such, it describes it as the way, the Lord says, the way is narrow, the gate is narrow, few enter through it. If you think of the Christian life like that, the hard decisions that they had to make on those days are a lot like the hard decisions that we have to make 
when someone wanders off of this path. When someone is following Jesus and all of a sudden is not following Jesus anymore. And instead of wandering into blowing snow and blindness and rocks, they're wandering into a life that's far from God, a life that could end in their own peril. And we look and say, what do we do? Do we go after them? How would we go after them if we did? They're convinced that they're living the right life. How could we bring them back? What do we do? Very similar situation. It is hard to know what to do. And even if you know what to do, it's hard to know how to do it. But I think that today, the Lord wants us to give us, he wants to give us wisdom to see what's really happening when a Christian walks astray from Jesus' ways, when a Christian wanders off the trail. And he wants to help us strengthen each other to do the scary work of seeking them out and bringing them back. As we close out our sermon series through the book of James today, I believe the last two verses will give us just that. So if you've got a Bible, turn it to James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, the last two verses. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Dark Pew Bible in front of you, and it's near the back on page 179. We're going to look at the last two verses of James today, and we're praying that he gives us wisdom for what to do when one of our own wanders off the trail. The Lord's servant writes, My brethren, if any among you stray from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. Amen. James is a practical book. Right, And if you've been with us through this whole series, you have probably seen that for yourself and figured that out. It is full of advice. It is full of commands on what to do. It's full of insight into what's really happening in certain situations. And then there are more commands, and then there are more advice, and then there are more commands. It is a down-to-earth, practical book. And if you came to it looking for help and following the ways of Jesus, I bet you found it there because of how practical it is. And so after five chapters of this, after five chapters, chapters of advice and commands and here is how to follow Jesus, James answers the question, well, what about the people that have stopped doing that? What about those whose works don't verify their faith, like we read about in chapter 2? What about those who do quarrel when they don't get their way? What about those who do swear by names in heaven and by names on earth? What about those who have stopped following in Jesus' ways? What do we do about them? And we might add to that today. Uh, what about one who was walking among us but today says, why can't I live my way if I'm not hurting anyone else? But today says, why does God care who I sleep with? What about someone who was walking in Jesus' ways and walks away? Well, James is a practical book and he gives a practical answer to that question. He says, the stakes are high. And so go get them back. He moves us to do that in two different ways. We're going to look at both of those ways today. Uh, and in the middle of them, we're just going to look at some other points in the Bible that have some practical advice about what to do in those hard conversations when you are trying to win someone back. But first, I want you to notice in the last couple of words in the epistle, he tells us what is at stake because we need to know what's at stake when we're having that hard conversation. Look at those last few words with me. What's at stake when you go after someone who has gone wayward? Well, it says we're saving their soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. So what is at stake? This person is abandoning and is forfeiting eternal life 
and their sins being forgiven. That's what's on the table when we're going to get them back. And he wants to end with that so we will see how severe and how sobering it is that that's what's on the table. And that is hard to drink in because I know that for many of you and for me too, this isn't a matter of theory, right? I mean, even as we've started to talk about people who have wandered from the way of following Jesus, you might be thinking of someone. You may have a loved one in mind right now and you want to know what to do about them. And it's hard to look at this and admit just to drink it in to really believe that, yes, that person is giving up every promise we have in Jesus Christ by hearing the gospel and then forsaking it with their ways. It's easy to think now, really, because I saw them walk down the aisle. Like, I saw them get baptized. I heard them testify to their growth in Jesus. And would the Lord really look at them now because they have walked away and say, I never knew you on the last day? We just sang a few minutes ago, for my life he bled and died, he will hold me fast, right? When I fear that my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. Doesn't God keep all of its own, you might be wondering? Well, yes, he does. All those who trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are saved today, and they will be saved on the last day. He keeps all of his own. But all of those who trust in Jesus for their salvation also live a life that reflects that faith. And if you don't choose to live the life that reflects it, that's because the faith isn't there in the first place. And so whoever you're thinking about right now, if that faith is and was genuine, the Lord will bring them back because he keeps all of his own. And he may even use this text and you to proclaim to them to bring them back, to be the one that does it. But if they continue to go down that road, yes, they are forfeiting their eternal life that they never actually had in the first place. And their sins will not be forgiven. I realize that's so hard to face, and so I want to just walk slowly through a couple of passages that say it as well, just so we can kind of take that in very slowly. Uh, I'm going to look at Hebrews 10 with you. If you want, you can turn there with me. It's Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. He writes, For if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving a knowledge of the truth, so this is someone who has received the knowledge of the gospel, doesn't necessarily believe in the gospel, but they know it, they've received it, and choose to go on sinning willfully, then he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume their adversaries. And then earlier, Paul Uh, In Galatians 5, you don't have to turn there, I know you just turned. In Galatians 5, Paul lists off the deeds of the flesh, like a person who is living based on their own body's desire. And he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, their immorality, impurity, sensuality. He lists them on and on. And then at the end, he says, I warn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So someone who walks away and chooses a life not following Jesus, they are choosing their own death. And the Lord wants us to see that here because if we don't see what is at stake when we go after them to bring that lost sheep back, we may not ever do it. 
We may not ever go and have that hard conversation because the stakes are high there, but the stakes are high for you too if you're honest, right? If you confront someone who is living in open and unrepentant sin, it's probably going to be very hard for you. It's probably going to be a very hard conversation. You could lose a close friend. Your relatives could forsake you over doing that. So when the stakes are that high for you, the Lord wants to show you the stakes are even higher for them. And so it is worth it to take that risk and go and do it. And this is doubly true for someone who is involved in sexual sin. Uh, few things make Americans more angry than telling them they can't sleep with whoever they want to. I mean, we, we take that as a God-given right that we can do whatever we want with our bodies. And so when you go after a friend or loved one and say, I love you, stop doing this, come back, they're going to see that as an infringement on their freedom. And the cost for you could be high as well. And so the Lord starts us off, he ends this epistle like this so that we can see we must overcome that fear over what we may lose and go after those that we love who have gone astray. So common sense says that you just aren't going to take that risk if you don't keep in mind how high the stakes are. In the same way, the rescuers on Mount Annapurna never would have left in those helicopters if they thought Dr. Chin could make it down by himself. But instead, they took great risk because they knew that he was at great risk. The Lord calls us to do the same, to risk even that friendship, even that relationship with that person, even their spurning of you and their mocking of you to go after them, to bring that one sheep back into the fold. Now before we go on to the other way James helps us to go after the wayward and to bring the one back to the 99, uh, some of you might be looking right now for practical help in how to have that conversation, right? Because it's not an easy conversation to have and maybe this was enough to motivate you to say, I've got to do this. My friend's eternal life is on the line. You've got to do it and you want help, right? And so we're going to pause here and just look at some other points in the scripture that will give you practical help in how to do it well and how to be brave in the midst of that hard conversation. Let's look first at Matthew 8. Flip back there with me if you would. As I've said a few times, James was written on the foundation that was laid by Jesus' sayings and by, on the, Old, by the Old Testament before him. And much of what we just read from James was founded, was grounded in Jesus' words here in Matthew 18. So he says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that one than over the ninety-nine that have not gone astray. And so it is, the, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." So as we talk today about probably someone in your life who maybe has broken your heart by walking away from following Jesus, one of the first things you need to know is that that heart that you have that breaks for them, that says, I want them to come back so badly, the Lord himself shares that heart. The Lord himself looks at them and says, I would leave 99 on the mountainside to go get that one. And I would be more glad when that one came back than I would be over the 99 who are gathered. If that person you're thinking of came back to church today and said, I am leaving my sin and I'm following Jesus again, I bet you would be happier to see them than you would be to see all of us here today, wouldn't you? Well, the Lord says, I feel the same way. 
It's not that he doesn't love that we're here, but if that one comes back, he will rejoice more in that than than all of us who are gathered right now because his heart goes out to that one. So one primary thing you've got to know that is if as you go after the wayward, the Lord has the same heart that you do for them. He wants them to come back just as badly, and you can count on him to work powerfully through your words. He does keep all of his own anyhow. And he loves them and wants them to come back. So count on him to be there and to empower you as you work and know that he wants the same thing that you do. Now then after that, Jesus goes on in verse 15 to say, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So can you see the connection? God wants to restore that one who has sinned, right? He's got that heart for the one sheep. And so he tells you, if you've got a brother that's sin, go and show him his sin in private. So the first thing that you're to do, he says, is go and not tell him his sin, but, but show him his sin, right? And there's a difference there. Uh, there's a difference between just going and wagging your finger and saying, you are in sin, and, and just you know, blowing that whole conversation, or patiently showing them so that they look at the truths of the Scripture and the truths of their life and have to say, yes, I have sinned against my Lord. That's what the prophet Nathan did when he went to King David, right? Many of you know the story of David and Bathsheba and how David stole a man's wife from him and then had that man killed. That man was a brave soldier in his army. He betrayed him and committed conspiracy and murder and maybe rape, depending on how you read the story. And then eight months later, I think it is, uh, he still hasn't repented of this. And Nathan comes to him, the prophet comes to him, and he doesn't just rise up and say, you wicked sinner. No, he comes to him and he tells him a story that sounds so random. He says, uh, there's a man who has 99 sheep and there's a man who has, or no, there's a man who has many sheep and there's a man that just has one little ewe lamb that he loves and treats like one of his children. And that rich man with all of those sheep uh, went and stole that one lamb from the poor man and then slaughtered it and killed it and served it to his friend. What, what should be done to that man? And David has no idea he's talking about himself. And he just rears up in anger and says, we should execute that man. And then Nathan turns the tables on him and says, David, you are the man. That's what you did. That's what it looks like to show somebody's sin to them, to patiently walk through the truth with them so that they see it. Uh, What you may need to do is go prepared with several scriptures, have them ready, know them, maybe even have them memorized, know where they are, turn to them, read them together, ask them to read one or two of them, walk slowly with them, and see if you can show them what is going on. Now, Jesus goes on to say many more things after that. Uh, I think if we go too deep into it, we'll stray from James's point. Uh, So instead, let's look at Galatians 6, chapter 1. You can turn there if you want to, or I'll just read it to you here if not. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians 6, right after he's talked about the fruit of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, he says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So he says there, I think, three things that could help you if you were thinking about having that conversation. One, look to yourself so that you won't be tempted. I won't go to that in detail. Uh, And then he says, the ones who should restore you, he says, you who are spiritual should restore them. All right, not not necessarily ever. There's a qualifier there. The ones of us, now he's just talked about walking in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit as a way of obeying Jesus. So those of us who are walking in obedience to Jesus ourselves, 
Those are the ones who should go after them. So if, so if you're handling that situation with bitterness and anger, you've got to get that right first and be walking in obedience to Jesus before you try to go and do that. If there's some secret sin in your own life, you've got to take care of that first, walk in obedience to Jesus, and then go and try to restore them. And then secondly, he says how to do it. He says you should do it in a spirit of gentleness. And part of that is because you're going to look like the bad guy in that conversation, aren't you? And so there can't be anything in your tone. There can't be anything in how you say it. There can't be anything in that whole conversation that plays into that fictitious picture that you're the bad guy. You've got to restore them in a gentle, loving, and kind tone. So there can be nothing in your tone, nothing in what you say that could come off harshly. Don't tease them. Don't nag them. Don't let bitter quips come out. If you're hurt and angry over what they've done, don't let that come out in the conversation. Restore them in a spirit of of gentleness. So that's some advice from the Bible on how to do what James is encouraging here. Uh, but finally, let's flip back to the original passage in James, the last two verses in James, and notice with me that there's only one command in these verses, and that command is not to go after the wayward, interestingly enough. There's one command, and let's, let's read it and uh, see if you can find what the one command is. In 19, he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Did you see what it was? Let him know. That's the one command that's in there. So many parts of the Bible call us to bring back the wayward. And many tell us that God goes after the wayward. But what makes James's words unique is that he is telling us to encourage each other to go after the wayward. He's telling us to commend and exhort the ones who have done that work. That's what makes what he's doing unique here. Let that person know, he says. So as you go back and try to win those who have walked away, you don't just need to know the stakes. You need the whole church surrounding you and supporting you in that, don't you? Because that is a scary endeavor. Uh, you need the rest of us cheering you on and saying God might work through you to save him. When your daughter breaks your heart one more time and never responds to your pleas to come back, you're going to get discouraged and you're going to need the church to say God still might change her heart. Keep talking with her. Keep working with her. Can you imagine if years go by and you brought up that estranged friend or relative kind of casually to somebody here in the church uh, and they realized what was going on, that you loved someone who had walked away and they just, their heart broke in front of you and they said, oh, I, I will pray for you because the Lord might use you to bring them back. How empowering that would be to you. That might be what spurs you into action to know, oh, my friend thought of that. I should have thought of that. I need to go have that conversation again. You need that. And if you need that, then we need that from you as well. We need you to say all of those things to us because we're just as weak and we need just as much to be encouraged by the church. We need you to say, I will pray for you. Go and rescue him. Go and rescue her. We need you to remember that for everyone who has walked away from Jesus, our first priority is to bring them back to him. And if we do that, we just might save them from death. I'm going to close with a story about just what can happen sometimes when you have those hard conversations. 
Uh, I went to church one time with a woman who's a good friend of Emily and I, uh, and she had a brother who I think grew up in the church. I'm not certain of that part of the story. I think he grew up as a Christian, uh, but, he, but he walked away one way or another, and he got involved in a number of things, including living an active homosexual lifestyle. Um, and his sister, or, yeah, his sister would plead with him once she became a Christian. She became a Christian later in life. And she would plead with him, just, just come to this church and meet these people who will love you. Just hear this good news of this God who wants to save you. And he just wanted nothing to do with it. And everybody's unique. And one thing that made him unique is that he didn't defend his lifestyle as right. He actually believed his lifestyle was wrong. And he would just say, I have wandered too far from God for him to ever take me back. And I'm just not interested in trying and hearing him reject me. I'm just going to live the life that I feel like living. And so over and over again, she'd plead with him. And over and over again, he would just want nothing to do with it. And time went by, and this man became very sick. Uh, so sick that he had to go to the hospital a few times. Then he had to go to the hospital for what they thought was probably going to be the last time. And so she called me on the phone, and she told me some of the story. I had never met him before because he didn't want to meet any of us. Uh, and she said, I've pleaded and pleaded with him, and he just won't meet with any of you. But now he's stuck in a hospital bed, so will you go? And will, <laughs> he can't leave, so will you go and share the gospel with him? And so I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And so I went, and um, they, they suited me up completely in medical gear. I mean, gloves, mask. I think there was a hat, everything. They wouldn't let me bring my Bible in, not because it was a Bible, but because no foreign objects could come into the room that had been fully sanitized, and you can't do that with all those pages. And so I went in there, and he was unconscious, and they feared that he might not ever wake up again. And his parents were there hoping he might wake up and they could say goodbye to him. And so I read to him, or no, actually, I recited to him a few verses from the Bible and just tried to share the gospel with him, even though we were all confident that he couldn't hear anything. Uh, and I just left kind of disappointed and thinking, man, Lord, I, I really wanted you to do a lot more through that. Um, a few weeks went by, and he had not woken up, and it became clear that he did not have very many hours left at this point. And so she called again. She said, will you go again? I said, of course, I'll go again. And so I went again. This time, they suited me up again, but they let me bring the Bible in. Um, I don't know why they did that time, not the first time. He had not opened his eyes in, in a few weeks at this point. Uh, he had a breather that was, that was doing the breathing for him, one of those ventilation tubes. Um, and so I just said to him, thinking he probably can't hear me, I just said, I know that you think you have wandered too far for God to ever take you back, uh, but I want to read to you a story of somebody else who thought that, and I want you to notice how his father reacted when he came home. Uh, and I opened up the Bible to the story of the prodigal son, and I just read him the story of how the son took his inheritance and, and forsook his family and ran away and spent all the inheritance on terrible things and then there was a famine and and eventually he's feeding pigs and wishing he could go back and be a, a servant in his father's house and and I'm reading all this and I look up at him and his eyes are wide open staring me down with this stare that says don't stop <laughs> I want to hear this story and so I kept reading it and I just thank the Lord for giving him the strength to have his eyes open in these last hours. His parents were in the hospital, and so they heard that his eyes were open, and so they came rushing in to say goodbye to him. Uh, and I got most of the way through the story. They came in. He looked over at them, and he smiled at them. And then he didn't have enough strength to stay awake, and he fell back asleep. And that was the last time that he ever closed his eyes. Um, 
If you can imagine being in his shoes and the effort you would put in to, to say goodbye to your parents and stay awake for that, that wasn't enough effort to keep him awake. That's, that's how weak and, and sick and tired he was. But for some reason, the spoken words of God were enough to open his eyes. And I don't know if he received the gospel that day. The truth is I never got to finish the story as he was awake. He was unconscious when he heard the rest of it. And I guess we'll find out in heaven if he's going to be there with us. But church, I know this. When you go after the wayward, God is there. And he works powerfully through his word. So use his word to win them back. When you go after the one and leave the 99, you don't go alone. The good shepherd goes with you. So Christian, go after that lost sheep and do not stop till you have brought him home. Let's pray.